They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of, Naz son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Let me pray for Mike before he comes to speak to us. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us majestically through it. Father, would you use Mike this morning, anoint his teaching, that it may shape us, encourage us, change us and challenge us. Father, let Mike be aware of your presence with him as he speaks. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Please do keep your Bibles open there at Mark chapter 10. There's a comedian called Tom Arnold who wrote a book, How I Lost Five Pounds in Six Years. I have to say that's my kind of diet. The interviewer at uh, asked this Tom Arnold why he'd written the book and he gave an amazing answer. He said that most entertainers 
are in show business because they are broken people looking for affirmation. The reason I wrote this book, Arnold said, is because I wanted something out there so people would tell me they liked me. It's the reason behind almost everything I do. Now, what would you replace comedian with in your life? Genuinely good endeavors like comedy or the arts or business or parenting or healthcare or education or government or any other thing become broken endeavors when we start depending on them to satisfy our thirst for love, our thirst for esteem, our thirst for applause and our thirst for approval. Let's be honest, we all want to be someone, not just anyone. We all want our life to matter, to count. We want to be admired, don't we? Looked up to. We'd like to succeed. We'd like to be really good at something, to be liked. Perhaps if we're really honest, we'd secretly like to be exceptional. Nobody here started out with the life ambition to be average. What do your daydreams look like, honestly? Now, given half a chance, we would all like to be great. And if we've just about given up on that, then maybe you hope your children will be great and you sort of live through them vicariously. At least they can be someone. Now, one reason why people, particularly men, go through what's called a midlife crisis is because there comes a point in life where it dawns on you that really, really isn't going to happen. So they do something crazy, grow a ponytail and buy a Harley Davidson and run off with the secretary. But that is driven by despair. And according to our passage today, we don't need to give up hope. Our text today shows how every one of us can be truly great. Do you believe that? Unashamedly, this is how you can be a truly exceptional person. You can be noble. You can live a life worthy of praise. You can actually be glorious. Here it is. Here's what we've all been waiting for. You ready for it? Followers of Jesus are ransomed to serve. And the greatest of us is the slave of all. That's how to be truly great. We're ransomed, we're bought to serve. And the greatest of us is the slave of all. Now that, of course, is absolutely countercultural to every culture I think that's ever existed. Because Jesus Christ says, contrary to all the beliefs of our hearts and what we've been brought up and our traditions, Jesus says that the way up is, is the way down. The way to be exalted is to be brought low. True greatness consists in total humility. In our world, the greater you are, the more people serve you the more people you have waiting on you and doing jobs for you. But Jesus says, the greater you are in the kingdom of God, the more people you will serve. Here's how to be great. Followers of Jesus are ransomed to serve. The greatest of us is the slave of all. And we see this develop in our passage over three points. Uh, the first is a request that's made. The second is Jesus teaching about the ransom that he's going to pay. And thirdly, there is the road, the path. So firstly, the request, verse 32. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've got a bit of a frog in my throat. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. 
And again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man, which is the way he describes himself, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. This is the third time in Mark's gospel that Jesus has predicted his death. This time he adds some more information. He's going to be killed in Jerusalem, the capital city. He's going to be condemned to death, which is a judicial phrase. So now we know that there's going to be some sort of legal process, which in fact will be deeply unjust. He will be handed from the Jews to the Gentiles. The Gentiles will be the ones that execute him. And there's a lot more here about the cruelty and humiliation involved with his death. Now every time in Mark's gospel Jesus makes a prediction about his death, there's a response from the disciples, his closest followers, and every time he has to correct them. So you probably remember in chapter 8, the first time Jesus shares about his death, Peter, the sort of chief of the group, takes him to one side and begins to rebuke him. You mustn't say that, you're going to be killed. And Jesus has to correct Peter. Well here's the third time. And the reason why this information is being put here is that this teaching is intended for us. It's intended to show us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And these disciples, these early followers, are holding a mirror up to you and me. And it's what we will see in that mirror is not very flattering. But we do need to see it. This section, starting in chapter 8, verse 27, and ending at the end of this chapter, is framed by two blind men. So this is all about I once was blind, but now can see. It's all about how you gain spiritual sight. And we find that true Christians, true disciples, are those who Jesus enables to see clearly, to see who he is and why he came. Now, given that there are three times Jesus predicts his death, and in verse 45 he says, this is what he's come for, then it follows that his death is central to who he is and his purposes in this world. It is the climactic event in his ministry. And that is what he is emphasizing with his followers here. But what do you make of James and John? Have a look at verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, I've got several children and I never agree to that kind of request. Will you do whatever we're going to ask? Tell me what it is first. And of course, Jesus is no fool. He says, hmm, what is it you want me to do for you? And they come with this audacious, brazen request. We we just want the right and the left seats uh, in your glory. In other words, these are the two top jobs in the kingdom. They're imagining that Jesus is going to be enthroned as the king. And in the ancient world, in the royal court, the two people sitting on the left and right were the two top dogs. They were just slightly below the king. They are seeking position. They want power. They want influence, status. They want to be the crown princes, second only to Jesus himself. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 20, we have a parallel account, same thing. And Matthew gives a little bit more information. It says that their mum was involved. 
They all came together, but mum was the one who actually asked the question. Now, I, <laughs> it's just extraordinary thought. Two guys getting their mum to come and ask the question for them, or she is the ultimate pushy mother who wants James and John to be getting ahead of the crowd. Now, just think about what they're doing here. Where's the recognition of what Jesus has just said is going to happen to him? What are they thinking is going to happen to the other disciples? Now, there were three guys who Jesus was particularly close to. They were the inner circle. They were the three that were invited up on the mountain to see Jesus transfigured in his glory. They were the same three who were asked by Jesus to draw aside with him and pray with him and support him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Those three are Peter, James, and John. And here we have two of them jockeying for position, presumably to try and cut Peter out. It's naked ambition. They see Jesus is the ticket to glory. Now, Jesus is so gracious. Look at what he says to them in verse 38. He says, you don't know what you are asking. You really don't even know. He could blast them. But he responds with grace, you really don't know what you're asking. And he says this quite obscure statement about the cup and the baptism. You can, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink or be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? What's this? Well, in the Old Testament, the cup is often a picture of God's anger. It's as if God's wrath, his, his, his righteous indignation uh, against human wickedness is all stored up in a cup. And at times people have to drink the cup and, and take the judgment of God upon themselves. And Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. In other words, at the cross, he will drink down the cup of God's righteous anger and fury against human sin and wickedness. Jesus will drink it down to the dregs. Can you drink the cup, he says to them? What about the baptism? Now, baptism can be very positive. It's one of the chief uh, symbolic rites of the Christian church. But baptism can also have a negative connotation. We, we use it in, in the English language. We talk about a, a really difficult experience as a baptism of fire. You know, you've got to go through an ordeal. And sometimes baptism has this, this connotation of being flooded with, with calamity and disaster. Just like a flood coming through and destroying everything in its path. And that's what's going to come to Jesus. Jesus will be baptized, destroyed at the cross where he drinks down the cup of God's wrath. So he says to them quite justifiably, can you drink that cup and be baptized with that baptism? And these guys are so confident. Verse 39, you see what they say glibly? Yes, we can. What do they think? They don't know what they're talking about. And Jesus says, well, you will share in my sufferings. Actually, all the disciples except Judas Iscariot did. But they will not sit at his right or left hand. Now, this is a very interesting saying. Because there is another place in Mark's gospel where it talks about two men who are on his right and left. Where is that place? Remember, it's at the cross. Jesus was crucified between two thieves who were on his right and left side, those places were already appointed. And that means that the cross is his glory. He's seated in his glory at the cross, and the right and the left seats are taken by two scandalous criminals. That is Jesus' glory. But, you know, Jesus, James and John are not really asking 
to be crucified with him, are they? They want something else. They want to be the big men. Now, in verse 41, the other 10 disciples get to hear about this, and they are really cross. How dare they? Now, why are these guys so angry? Is it because of the insensitivity of James and John towards Jesus? He's just shared, you know, he's bared his soul and shared about the ordeal that's facing him. And they're thinking, James and John, how could you be so No, no, it's not, none of that. It's because James and John have tried to beat them to the top jobs. They feel cheated because they are just as ambitious. Everybody sees Jesus as a ticket to glory. And we know this because in verse 42, Jesus' teaching is directed at all of them, not just James and John. Now, that's the request, my first point. Now, of course, Christian friend here, you and I would never be like that, would we? Would we? We, we would never be like those disciples, would we? Now, just think about this for a moment. Just think about your prayers do you ever go to God in, in prayer and basically say, Lord, I want you to do for me whatever I ask? A few diagnostics you could use to test your prayers. Firstly, are your prayers largely concerned with your own needs, your own problems, your own life, your own comfort, or God's kingdom? Secondly, if God doesn't help you out of difficulty when you pray, or if he doesn't deliver you in the way that you see fit, you complain, you despair, maybe even curse. Or you say, well, God really isn't there for me, or maybe he doesn't exist, just because he didn't answer the way you wanted. Thirdly, do you ever give up praying when you don't get what you want? Now, just compare that kind of prayer. We want you to do for us whatever we ask with the prayer that Jesus gave us to pray in Matthew's gospel and in Luke the Lord's prayer our father in, who art in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, Jesus' prayer is kingdom-focused. There is stuff in there about our needs. But it's not all about us and what we want and our problems. It's all about God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. That's the way to pray. You see, at our heart, we are just like James and John. That's why this is written down for us. Another diagnostic. Do you let your life be ruled by worry and anxiety? Do you? Now, there is such a thing as clinical anxiety, just as there's clinical depression. I'm not talking about that. But most of us don't struggle with that level of clinical anxiety. Yet, our lives are ruled by anxiety. What is at the heart of it? Isn't it the belief that we know what is best for ourselves? And that if it doesn't go that way, it's out of control? And if we've lost control, then the world really is going to the dogs? You see what we're thinking? In that scenario, where is God? He is the supreme meter of our needs. And who is calling the shots? We are. 
There's a man called Geddes McGregor who wrote a prayer in 1954 uh, describing a typical Sunday morning in a church following, following the rites of orthodox pretend Christianity. Here's the prayer. Oh dear wonderful father of our incredibly unbelievable experience. We like to feel assured that we may always come to you when we feel like it. And now, dear Lord, we want quite naturally and simply, and just in a word, to ask you very frankly to give us our heart's desire. You are the comforter, as the old story puts it, and so you are our friend, for we are very fond of comfort. How are your prayers? What kind of requests do you make when you come to the Lord? Now look, that is the basic human position. We all start from there. It's the place we we, we come from, we all want glory, we all want to be in charge. Um, John Milton's Paradise Lost, one of the great poems of the English language, great Christian poem, uh, describes Lucifer. People have criticized it because Lucifer is a more realistic depiction than Jesus, which is probably shows you how, you know, how we tend to, to think. And Lucifer says in hell, here at last we shall be free. The Almighty has not built here for his envy, will not drive us hence. Here we may reign secure. And in my choice, to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. That's the basic human position. I'd rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. Because I'm at the center. And I want to be glorious. And I want to be in charge. But you know, there is a better way. Followers of Jesus are ransomed to serve, and the greatest of us is the slave of all. Second point, Jesus teaches what he's come to do. Verse 41, uh, we'll pick up in verse 42. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gathers around and teaches what will be the ethic, the rule of conduct for his family, and that means for us as his church. Look at the nations around, he says. Look at the Gentiles. They, the ones who've got a bit of power love to lord it over people, to show that they're boss, to get people to run around and do their bidding. They want to show that they're in charge. They get the corner office, and it's always a big office. They get the key to the executive bathroom and the big cigar. And everybody knows because of their job title, their suit, and their status, and their car, of how important they are. And Jesus says that is worldly power. That's how people handle greatness. Get everyone to serve me. But the big contrast in verse 43 is not so with you. Grace Church, Christian friends here, not so with us. There mustn't be a whiff of that among us. You want to become great? Become a servant. Now this word servant, Diakonos is a word that we get deacon from. It's a word used for somebody who waits at tables. A waitress, a waiter. Verse 44, you want to be number one? Then you must be a slave of all. This is an even stronger word, doulos. It means someone who's actually a slave. 
They belong to another person. They don't have their own rights. They don't get to book holiday off and go away. They don't get the bank holidays. They don't get to choose which jobs they do. The slave can be asked to do any job in the house. They do not have their own rights. They are someone else's property. This is deliberately adopting the lowest place in society. Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, this is how we, this is how we run. Low status, serving others. Now, what is the motive to live like that? Verse 45, perhaps the key verse in the whole gospel. A wonderful, wonderful verse. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ came to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, what is a ransom? I suppose if we think about the word ransom, we think about kidnapping, you know, someone's been taken and they're in a hostage situation and the kidnappers demand a ransom, don't they? A payment to be made and then they'll set them free. Well, there's a bit of that in here. The background of this word ransom is in the Old Testament. And it's particularly when somebody was enslaved. If you had a family member who'd been either captured in war and enslaved or who'd become really poor, and bankrupt, and the only way out of their bankruptcy was to sell themselves into slavery, which they could, then there was a way out of slavery for them. It was if someone else paid a price. And that price was called the ransom. And it could be very high. Now, the key thing here, obviously, is that a slave cannot buy themselves their freedom. By definition, they can't buy their way out because they had to sell themselves into slavery or they've been captured. Somebody must pay and they can't do it. And Jesus here says this is why he's come. He gives us a glimpse here into some of the deep things of God. Verse 43, he says the Son of Man has come. Jesus wasn't just born. He didn't just grow up. He didn't just appear. He came on a mission from eternity to earth. From the throne room of heaven to be born in a stable, to live as one of us. But he came with a purpose. He's come to do what we could not do for ourselves, to pay the price. And he does it to set us free from the slave masters that dominate our lives. Here are some of them. Sin. Our rebellion against God is our sin. Our failure to reach God's standards. Our self-centeredness. Our pride. All these things are our sin. They, they enslave us. They rule us. They oppress us. Satan. The Bible teaches that there's a spiritual dimension and that there are spiritual forces, dark spiritual forces, that operate in all of our lives. Some parts of the world, they're much more evident. In other parts of the world, they kind of go underground, but they're still operating. We are under the oppression of spiritual forces. Thirdly, we're under the oppression of death. We fear death. We don't like talking about death. Western people don't even get to see death. It's all kept out of sight. We try and imagine that we're going to live forever. We don't want to die. We don't want it all to end. But it will. And it's a slave master that we live in fear of all our lives. And Jesus comes to set us free from sin and Satan and death. And it says here, he pays the ransom for many. 
for many. And we know from elsewhere in the Bible that that is a very big number, so big that you and I couldn't count it. A multitude that no one could number are being ransomed by Jesus Christ through history. That number is already in the billions. Now, where did he pay this ransom? One of the uh, passages that's hinted at there in that phrase, give his life a ransom for many, is Isaiah chapter 53. Perhaps one of the greatest Old Testament texts about the Messiah who would come. And it blends together the image of a wonderful conquering king with a suffering servant. And in Isaiah 53, it says this, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The chapter ends with this word. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That prophecy, which was written seven or eight hundred years before Jesus Christ walked the streets of Galilee, predicts the cross in the most extraordinary manner and says that this suffering servant will be pierced, crushed, brought low, broken for many, that he would bear the sin of many there. And that is where Jesus Christ paid the ransom, friends, at the cross. He gave himself for us. He held nothing back. He gave himself so that many could be rescued and brought into his open arms. So listen to me. That is what you cost Jesus. You see that? That is what it cost God to win you and buy you back. Have you ever really seen it? Now, if that is the case, then there is all the motivation in the world that you need to stop living for yourself and start serving others. Because your Lord gave himself for you. The greatest in this kingdom is the slave of all. I wonder what model of greatness, what paradigm, what image shapes your heart. Teenagers, are you ruled by the image of the cool person, the insider? You know, that person who kind of everybody looks up to and admires. You know that that person exercises their authority by dismissing others, and making them feel uncool and pushing them outside? That's no model for you if you want to follow Jesus. You teenage girls, you know, how our world presses in on you, how important your image is. If only you looked like this, then you'd be able to rule. That's no way to follow Jesus. The intellectual, the ones on the inside who have the knowledge, the ones who can put others down because they have the right answers, that's not the way to serve people. Adults, are we in some way captivated by images of alpha males, alpha females, people who control situations, who boss the room? Every conversation they tend to overrule, turn it back to themselves and their agenda. 
People are enthralled to them. That's no way to serve Jesus. Are we somewhat captivated by the image of the person who's successful? The one who got to the top of the pile? The consultant, if you're a medic? The CEO, the business leader? That aggressive, driven, hard-headed person who will crush others in order to get where they want to go? That is no model for a Christian. The greatest of us is the slave of all. What paradigm is dominating your heart and mind? How can you live as a servant? That's what we're called to and there is no other option if we're going to follow Jesus. That's the ransom and its implications. Thirdly and finally, there is a choice for all of us here and it's a choice of which path we're going to take. And I'm going to speak here to both those of us Christians and those who are not. And I know there's a mixture of us in this room. We're going to think about the road. Have a look at verse 30, sorry, 46, where they move on this time to Jericho. And as Jesus and his disciples, with a large crowd, are leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then this incredible scene unfolds where this guy is shouting so loudly that he's so loud the crowd can not only hear him, but they want to tell him to shut up. Now just imagine how loudly he's shouting here. If there's a, cr- a large crowd of people and they're all walking along and talking and making noise, and there's this one guy sitting by the road with his cloth uh, blankets spread out in front of him, begging, he's blind, he hears, he hears the voices. And he's asking, who, who is it? Why is there such a commotion? And they say, yeah, you, know, you heard of Jesus? He's here. And he begins to shout so loud. And they try and shut him up. He's annoying them. And they say, he says, I'm going to shout all the louder. And he shouts, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, son of David is one of the titles for the Messiah, God's conquering king. He's giving true glory and honor to Jesus, saying, I know who he is. Somehow, he's the king who's come to set things to right, the son of David. And Jesus wonderfully hears him, stops, turns, calls, and Bartimaeus doesn't waste a single moment. He flings his cloak aside and he jumps to his feet and he somehow finds his way to Jesus, blind man. And Jesus asks the very same question that he asked those two guys earlier on. Verse 51, what do you want me to do for you? And he replies, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight. And where did he go? He followed him along the road. That road that everyone else is scared to go down, says at the beginning of the passage, Jesus is leading the way. The others are hanging back, astonished and afraid. Bartimaeus, newly restored to sight. Jesus tells him to go, and where does he go? He follows. One little detail in here that is easy to skip over is the moment where he hears the voice of Jesus And it says he throws his cloak aside. That is his only means of sustaining his old life. His cloak, it's all he's got. The cloak would be spread out in front of the beggar. It's where people would place their money or gifts for him. This guy hasn't even been healed yet. And he stands up, gets the cloak and throws it. I don't need that anymore. He puts the old way of life behind him. He receives his sight. 
and he follows Jesus. He goes on the way. Our text here, the, the, the version we have in the church says the road, but under that is the word way, which in early Christianity was a way of talking about being a Christian. You were a follower of the way. Your steps were marching after Jesus. What does this teach us about being a Christian? It means you have to press and pursue and shout out and ask Jesus to have mercy on you, to have pity. You have to seize the moment where he's there and present and speaking to you and available to you. You have to be ready to leave aside the old life and cast aside the cloak and choose to follow him wherever he will lead. Some of you here, I think, have been looking into the Christian faith for weeks, months, years, and you're still not following the way. You've got to be very careful because Jesus won't stand waiting for you forever. Choose today who you will serve. Is it going to be serving yourself? And your own agenda and trying to make yourself glorious and all the cramping little life that that leads to? Or will you step out, lean your full weight on Jesus Christ, stop trusting in your own goodness and righteousness, which is filthy rags, follow him, ask him to accept you, to forgive you, to have mercy on you, and say, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go, even though I don't know where it is. I'm begging you to do it today. The Bible says, now is the appointed time. Today is the day of salvation. Is he calling you now? And those of you who have followed Jesus, who do bear his name, who are following the way, what does this look like for us to be a, a servant, a slave of all? Followers of Jesus are ransomed. They're bought to be slaves. Let me close with an illustration. Major General Donald James Wilson Haffenden. It's a great name. Donald James Wilson Haffenden, CBE, OBE, was a senior officer in the British Army. He commanded troops all around the world. He was also a committed Christian. In the late 1950s, he came to Oldham, North Manchester, to give a tea time talk on a Saturday to a little group of boys who were part of something called the Boys' Brigade. And there they were. And my father was present. He was a member of the boys' brigade. And he was there as a 16-year-old. And he recalls how the boys ate sandwiches and cakes as the major general spoke to them about Jesus. And then the boys all rushed off to get on with what they were doing, probably running out to play football. And as they were leaving, my dad, it was almost 60 years ago, happened to look back at the major general. And he saw something that stayed with him to this day. He was tidying up after the lads, picking up the rubbish off the floor and the tables that we'd left behind. I guess it was thoughtfulness for those who would have to clean the place later. It impacted me as an example of humility, thoughtfulness, and the power of a servant heart, although I might not have expressed it quite so elegantly as a 16-year-old. That's what it looks like. We're ransomed to be servants, and the greatest of us is the slave of all. Let's pray.